0: Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own.
1: Check out the Johncast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. 27 years
1: later, I definitely made the best decision ever coaching the women at Gwinnett for the basically almost three decades has been probably one of the greatest experiences that I had professionally in my career so yeah, you know, I at that part back in 1995 I had no idea that I'd be sitting here talking to you right now
0: and our guest this week is Keith Mondillo the AD and women's basketball coach at division three Gwinnett Mercy University Keith thanks so much for taking the time
1: I appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. I look forward to it.
0: As we're talking here, you're in the heart of the season. How much fun has it been to just kind of be back into a full, uh, relatively close to normal grind of a college basketball season?
1: Yeah, it, you wouldn't think you would miss it as much as you did until you went through last year. You know, you know, everybody gets up and down on their teams as the season goes along, but we didn't have that last year, I and mean, we we had it handful of practices and and two games. We had a senior night and then we had um, a senior night for the team that we played. So getting back to this, and especially with our players, um, luckily all of them being fully vaccinated, it's made it a lot easier. That doesn't mean we've had some, you know, some of our student athletes get sick, but yeah, this year, Matt, it's been a tremendous uh, year since 2019-20 2019-20 seems like an eternity ago. And, you know, we talked about our men's coach, John Barron. He played in the ECAC tournament and the day after that tournament was over, everything shut down and no one knew it was going to be as long as it was. So, yes, I am very grateful for the season.
0: In a way, did the, you know, if we're looking for a silver lining... Did the year away, and you talk about being grateful, did it, does it recharge in a way that you kind of get that excitement to get back out there and you kind of remember the little things that you maybe start to take for granted, and once they're taken away, you get a new look at it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's and it's really the interaction with, with the students that you miss. You know, Developing a team, coming over a, a hurdle, trying to figure out how to get by that hurdle, and and just constantly developing throughout the year So, yeah, this season, especially in October when we started practice, it was like starting all over again. You know, we had a bunch of freshmen last year that really didn't get any on-court instruction. So we essentially have two freshman classes. So, um, and this year we have no seniors. So our four juniors are leadership. And then we're kind of teaching our sophomores and freshmen almost as one class right now. So, yeah, it's this year was a total rejuvenation of our, of my batteries in order to, you know, the coach for this year. And I'm, you know, we're almost through um, February and our conference playoffs start in two weeks and you almost wish it does. It doesn't end, you know, keep going, keep playing in the March. That's our our goal is and our hope is.
0: I want you to take the basketball coach hat off, put the athletic director hat on how challenging has the AD role been the last year or so from a day-to-day and a big-picture standpoint? I don't think people
1: realize how difficult it was. You know, we're trying to get our student-athletes engaged and trying to get them back onto the playing field. And myself, our head athletic trainer, and our leadership here at the university, just like every other university, we're formulating plans for return to play in accordance with the NCAA guidelines. And every time you get to that point, those guidelines would change or something would change. <clears throat> I think we put together about three return to play reports before we actually got to implement one of them. And <clears throat> we didn't say we didn't have a traditional fall or winter season last year. We got we did get on the field <clears throat> for those student athletes. And we had a, a relatively normal spring season with an occasional pause here and there. The challenge last year was being able to pivot at the drop of a dime and staying positive and just trying to see the bigger picture and things. And I think we did a good job. I think all of our institutions in this region, especially here at Gwinnett, we kept our student athletes safe. Um, We followed all the protocols and we gave our student athletes the best experience we we, we could under the circumstances. So it was very challenging, Matt. When did you get the AD role as well? Well, this is my 27th year as the women's coach. I believe it was in my third year.
0: Okay. So fourth
1: year. So about 23, 24 years. I should know that, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take to be able to kind of silo off the two jobs? And obviously they work, you know, being a coach and athletic, but there are, I've had friends that do both at various levels. And I'm always amazed when you go into their office, you know, 20 minutes before a game and they're on the phone and you think, oh, they're talking to a recruit or somebody. Now they're talking to a, you know, the the laundry room because the uniforms for baseball didn't go from A to B like they were supposed to. And it's just always amazing how you can kind of shut that off and and then focus on the game. How long did it take you to be able to kind of juggle everything and still give the coaching role the attention it needs? Well, that's still a process. It's always a process.
1: And I had some pretty good mentors along the way um, that have you know, taught me how to organize my day and how to um, organize each role and how it relates, especially when you're in season. So I think it's a constant evolution. Uh, I don't think there was a, a, a time that I said, I, this is how it's going to be. I mean, I'm walking from my locker room, to the gym on game day and there's eight, nine minutes on the clock before it starts. And I'll have a coach or a student athlete grab me and ask me a question. And just to take 30 seconds out of the day to to answer whatever question, if I didn't have the answer then, you know, to say, hey, call, call me tomorrow and we'll be able to sit down and go over further. I don't think that'll ever end being in the AD, just because, you know, you're, you're trying to serve um, several constituents on your campus from student athletes to coaches to administrators to people above you. So it's a constant juggling act that, you know, I like to think I, I, I do a good job doing that. I could probably get better at it, but it's, it's difficult at times. You know, like you said, like I'm, you know, in, after a game, after a tough loss, you go back to your office and maybe someone needs to talk to you about something going on with the men's game. So you really have to shut things down as the coach and then you have to put on your AD hat.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your origin story with basketball. Were you always a basketball Mm -hmm. junkie as a kid or did you play whatever was going on in the neighborhood or whatever was in season?
1: Yeah, I grew up in the uh, Roxborough, Manioc area of Philadelphia. So it was seasonal. You know, football in the fall, um, basketball in the winter, baseball in the spring and summer. And it really wasn't until... Late grade school, probably really early high school where I caught the basketball bug. Played uh, both growing up. But, you know, I, I was lucky enough to to live in, in Roxburgh where we had, you know, Speedy Morris lived around the corner from. And seeing what he did and how he went about his life and the, and the, the professionalism that he exuded, it just drew me. I mean, I think young in my career as a basketball player, I knew I wanted to coach. I just didn't know where or when or how. Um, so, now it wasn't until really high school where I concentrated on basketball. Uh, and, you know, it just turned into a career. I didn't even really think I was going to have a career out of it. But 27 years later, as a head coach and probably 30 years uh, as an you know, overall coach in college, you know, I'm just lucky to where I'm at right now.
0: You went to Archbishop Kennedy, correct? Archbishop Kennedy and Concha what were some of your favorite memories from your playing days there? I think it's just the the guys that you're with. You know, in the locker room, I
1: still talk to several of them today. Um I'm still friends with um a, a guy Gene Sweater. I grew up with around the corner in Roxburgh and we played in high school together and we talk all the time today. I think some of our favorite memories I played with a young man who was all-state named Chris Kaufman. And we got to play in some pretty big games and just the the town of in itself. Even growing up in Philadelphia, I love Philadelphia, but Conshohocken was such a, a close-knit community, and they cared so much about their their sons and daughters and how they played and where they played, and then it was just a supportive atmosphere. And Kennedy was one of the greatest high schools ever. You know, it's a shame that you know it had emerged and eventually closed down. But what a what an experience! You know, growing up, we were pretty successful. We won the districts. Uh, My junior year went pretty far in states and we were very competitive uh, my senior year. So my memories are I mean, it transcends basketball. It's just everything about, um, you know, the high school. We had a a football coach named Chris Bockrath, who was one of the most successful high school coaches in the area. And, you you know, talk about a mentor in high school. He was a mentor to everybody. You know, everybody felt they were close to him and he was close to everybody. He was just a, a good guy. So high school memories are tremendous. You know, I, if, if I could go back and do it again, I would do it all over again.
0: After high school, mm-hmm. you went to Arcadia to to hoop. Was that, were there other schools you were looking at or were they always the one that showed the most interest?
1: Well, I actually, I went to Eastern university in my freshman year. Oh, okay. And um, you know, I to be quite honest with you, I was the sixth guard on a five guard rotation team as a freshman so I didn't see uh, much future in me playing. There It was a great school. And I, I still talk to, um, guys who I played with there <clears throat> and then long story short, ran into a friend of mine, a guy named Gene camp. He went to play at North Catholic and I saw him over that summer and he said, yeah, I want to think about transferring to Arcadia and play here. And at the drop of a dime, I, I applied, was accepted. And next thing you know, I was at Arcadia and that was another great experience. Um, talk about, you know, having, you know, friends on the, on the team and, and and as you're playing, but then they're friends to me today. Like they're at my kids' parties. I'm at their children's parties, we're each other's weddings. Um, Arcadia was a great place where we they were growing at the time. We had a coach named Mike Holland, who was probably the perfect person for that job at the time. He was building a program at a school that had no reputation athletically. And, Um, Did a great job of creating a family atmosphere. Um, He was actually Jay Wright's high school coach at Council Rock. So um, there's that unique, you know, bloodline between Arcadia basketball and Jay Wright. Um, (laughs) But no, I mean, uh, it was a great experience. I, I, you know, wind up playing there for my last three years, started for two years and um, just had a a fun time and a great career.
0: Scout your game
1: for me. (laughs) when I went in, I was a typical suburban jump shooter. And then when I went to Eastern, my roommate was a kid who um, uh, went to Simon Grassky named Bo Thompson. And he taught me how to play. So I think when I got to Arcadia, I think I was an all around better player. I wasn't a point guard. I wasn't a shooting guard. I was just a guard. So I did a lot of things well I didn't do anything extravagant, like like anything that was really good. I didn't hit like ninety threes in a game or something like that. But um, I was your typical tough Philly guard.
0: You mentioned earlier that you knew <clears throat> you wanted to coach, didn't know what that would look like. As your <clears throat> college career is winding down, are you starting to position yourself and seeing what it looks like, uh, and how you you get in the get in the door somewhere?
1: Matt, the complete opposite. I wanted to be an attorney. and I, I knew I wanted to coach, but I'm thinking coaching like, like high school, you know, helping out as an assistant. So my first job a week out of college, I worked for the third circuit court of appeals down six and market. And I was down there and I thought like, this is the perfect opportunity for me to become an attorney. Then I realized what attorneys actually did. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that stuff. That, I mean, I saw the, the, uh, the judge's law clerks come in and they're bleary eyed. And yeah, you know, it looked like they had no sleep. And I'm like, this is not a, a life for me. And then ironically I was playing in a summer league at the Orland playground, which is a very competitive summer league. And then I ran into the gentleman who was the I, the men's basketball coach at Gwena mercy at the time. His name was Keith Rice. He said, would you be interested in helping out this year? Never even thought about it. I said, sure. I'll help out. You know, it's close, yeah, you know, to my house. It's only about twenty minutes, and that's how I started. You know, I was working for the federal government, and by chance, I ran into a gentleman, yeah, you know, who was a coach at Gwinnett Mercy, and I helped him out for years as assistant coach, and that's how I started coaching.
0: Was it apparent to you that that was the fit, like that you were going? This was going to be more than just something you you did twice a week, you know, to help out. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, once you got involved in it and you saw, you know, how influential you could be to a, a student or, or a team in, um, overall, yeah, it, Matt, 100%, it was, it was like, you know, it, it was catching a fever of coaching. Like you caught the coaching buck and that's what started going out recruiting. Uh, I think I talked to more recruits we didn't get today than ever before, just because you developed those relationships and most college coaches despise recruiting. That was the thing that I loved to do. So, yeah, at, at that point, I started to think, how can I do this full time?
0: Why did you love the recruiting so much? Was it just meeting the people and and convincing them to to come your way?
1: I think it was a little
0: bit of a uh,
1: of a few things. That being it, um, you know, the game within a game, like trying to beat out another school for a. Uh, uh, a kid that you really wanted, but it, it, it is about building relationships. When I have a recruit on campus and I walk you know, a student athlete around with their parents, like that's my job for that. That day is to talk to that student about Gwen And what, like, how, how great is that? You know, that you're actually, and we've, we've gotten more no's than yeses over the years. And it's just the relationships that you develop. That, you know, some students that have decided to go to other universities, other schools over my career, I still talk to. You know, sometimes I'm their references for their first job application, just because we've always kept in touch. So I I think recruiting is as long as you're organized and you stay on top of things and you have really good assistant coaches that that do follow ups, um, that I think it's really not that hard of a job.
0: From you know, the thing that I've always been <laughs> curious about recruiting or interested, I should say, how did you feel comfortable evaluating the talent right away? Like, did you trust yourself that you had a good, a good judge of who could really play and who could do what the system you're, you're recruiting for would, would plug in? Or was that something that took a, a few cycles of maybe trial and error before you really got a feel for, for who fits where?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's the latter. It was trial and error, I would go to recruiting events and I would say, Hey, I think that girl can really help us in like in two years. And then a friend of mine who's coaching like a division one school. So that's great, Keith, but she's already been scholarship at five division one schools have offered already. So it took me a while on the, on the girls high school basketball side to figure out, you know, who fit and what level you recruit boys out of the, out of Philadelphia Catholic league or Philadelphia public league, there's kids in the Philadelphia publicly that are honorable mentioned that are getting scholarships, you know, the Division One. So that didn't happen a lot in, in, on the girl side. So it took a few cycles to try and figure out, you know, who fit and who didn't fit. And I was lucky enough that, um, you know, I had a, a good friend in coaching and, you know, just growing up, Brian Mars, actually Speedy Mars's son, who helped me get in on some of these Catholic League kids that we got early on in my career. And, you know, it kind of jump-started our program from glorified intramurals to a team that was competitive within the region.
0: How much of an advantage, because you talked about that a lot of coaches don't like recruiting, how much of an advantage do you feel it gives when it is something that you genuinely relish, that maybe that you go to that extra showcase or you make that extra phone call that maybe Mm -hmm. another coach who's just tired of it you know, wants to get through it, knows it's a necessary evil. Uh, I would imagine maybe that helps get you to the finish line. Not all the time, but mm-hmm. but here and there that it doesn't for other coaches. Well, I think early on it helps.
1: Early on in my career, I think you could outwork coaches. But as you, you and I spoke prior to jumping on this call, um, technology has kind of leveled that playing field. So you can send out an email or a text message to 50 recruits with just one click of a button. So um, I don't think there's much advantage now because everyone's kind of doing the same thing. You know, we're always constantly following up, whether it's a phone call or text message or email. So I think early on when a lot, when the technology wasn't there and you had to go to high school games, now everything's done in the summer. You know, you go to high school games as a follow-up almost to to the kids you had, you got up on campus in August and September. So, yeah, I mean, I do think it's a ne- it's a necessary evil, but it's a necessary evil that I, I enjoy. And I take it, you know, in an athletic department here, like John Barron, I know, you, you know you're friends with John. John does a tremendous job recruiting. And when I see him, you know, and our men's cross coach and they're constantly bringing students up for visits and stuff like that, it kind of motivates you internally to try and top them. So, you know, early on in our career, we used to have contests to see how many, you know, how many kids we can get up in the summer. And not for any reason, just to, to build our programs. But it just helped that we had that little friendly competition
0: internally. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with Gwynedd Mercy University head women's basketball coach and athletic director, Keith Mondillo, right after this and we are back. Our guest this week is Gwinnett Mercy University head women's basketball coach and athletic director, Keith Mondillo. So you get to start at Gwynedd, and then after a season, you go back to your alma mater, Arcadia, for a year. And I'm curious, for that year in Arcadia, I would imagine there are still kids you played with that were on the team, and how difficult Was that, I mean, there's a year break and you're not around. So there is kind of that separation where it's not one day your teammates and the next day, you're in a position of authority, but did it lead to any awkwardness where, you know, maybe, uh, you're in a different role and it it just leads to a different dynamic with, uh, with people you played with.
1: Um, no, not really, because I, I, I mean, I was still young. It was my second year and yeah, I did play with a bunch of those guys. And I was more of the the go-between between our head coach, not that he couldn't do it, but and the players. And and I and I our head coach, Mike Holland, gave me a lot of autonomy to, to do some things and I would give him suggestions because we were so athletic. I remember that team like it was yesterday about pressing things and what we can do and how we can trap and rotate. So I think when the players saw that Mike Holland was giving me that latitude that I wouldn't say it changed over right away, but I think they saw me more as now a coach as opposed to their former teammate. I think we're always going to be former teammates, but what Mike Holland did and enabled me to develop as a coach, not only personally, but in the eyes of the players at that time. So it wasn't as awkward or difficult as you would think it would be.
0: So one season back at your alma mater, and then the the women's position at Gwynedd Mercy uh, becomes yours. Kind of what's the road back to Gwinnett and to this, to, to running your own program?
1: Well, the gentleman who I um, coached with, he was an assistant at Arcadia that year, wind up becoming the athletic director at Gwinnett. And at the time, I'm thinking I'm going to be the next Mike Shashevsky. I know we all laugh about it, but we all like every coach, young coach aspires to the highest level. Well, he asked me to coach the women's team at Gwinnett. And I balked for about two months. And finally, he said, I'll get it to you. It'll be full time next year. You know, just try it. If you don't like it, you can leave. Well, I had at that point, I had not coached any sports that involved women. And 27 years later, I probably not probably. I definitely made the the best decision ever because I thoroughly enjoy it. Not that I would never go back and coach men. I coach my son's AAU team, but coaching the women at Gwinnett for the basically almost three decades um, has been probably one of the greatest experiences that I had professionally in my career. Um, I enjoy it every day, from the first day I started coaching till today. It's you know it's been nothing but fun, and you know I enjoy developing teams developing players and just getting to know families and stuff like that so yeah, at that part back in 1995 i had no idea that i'd be sitting here talking to you right now
0: to that point 1995 you come back you've got a program you're what 25
1: yeah 26 24 25
0: yeah uh where do you start are you overwhelmed does it make sense what are you inheriting kind of give me the lay of the land 1995 ed gwinnett
1: I'm inheriting a team that um, had very little success in a new league called the Pennsylvania Athletic Conference and really were were treated not as a collegiate program. So the first thing we did, I'll never forget it. Our first meeting we had, I think we had about 25 women attend. And then when we went through what the schedule would look like, you know, one day off because of, of the NCAA rule, And when I told them we were practicing six days a week, the next meeting, it got down to 12. So we had a a bunch of women on that first team that played hard all the time and set the standard for how we would play in subsequent years. And then getting back to what we talked about earlier, um, the one thing I knew I had to do is recruit. We had to bring in good players. And that first recruiting class. We brought in a young lady who played at Hallahan named Michelle Costa, and she turned out to be our school's first Kodak All-Americans with a thousand points, excuse me, 2000 points and almost a thousand rebounds. So that first year, the only thing that felt overwhelming was is just trying to create that culture of competitiveness and that you have to be committed. This isn't, you know, four day a week club sport. It's a collegiate sport. And you know, I think we changed that culture over the course of that those first two years. Our first game at Gwinnett, I still have it on VHS somewhere. There was one person sitting in the stands, literally one person. I, to this day, I don't even know who it was sitting in the stands. And, you know, two years later, we're hosting the conference semifinals and finals in front of like a thousand people in our, in our gym. So it was a pretty unique experience from the very beginning like two, three years later and how far we, we grew.
0: Did you feel like you were good at it right away?
1: No, I didn't. I remember coming back when teams went zone against us, it was like kryptonite. You know, I felt like, Oh my God, we got to score at least once or twice immediately to get out of the zone. So real early on in my career, after my second year, when I struggled against zone, All I did was study zone offenses and what teams did against it. And nowadays when teams don't play a zone, you know, I get, I'm like, Hey, we're wasting all the stuff that we can run against it right now. So now, I mean, you're constantly evolving as a coach and, you know, you kind of study, I learned early um, to study programs along the way, not necessarily try and mirror what they do, but try and just see how they do it, how they teach it. And, you know, and kind of take bits and pieces from other people's programs and kind of make it your own. And that's what I did early on. You know, if we had the internet back then, I think I would have been in front of my computer 24 seven because I watched more game film called more coaches and talked to more coaches than I think I ever did in that first 10 years, 12 years as head coach.
0: Was there any part now you'd been a college athlete, you'd been an assistant, but I think it's different when you get your first program, were there things that all of a sudden were on your plate that you had no idea you were going to have to deal with? Because I think a lot of young coaches just get in and think, oh, I'm just going to coach and this will be great. (laughs) And, you know, there are just things that all of a sudden are connected to you that, are not in the brochure and it's just how it works. Uh, were there things like that early on for you?
1: you know, yeah. I mean, the balance of your professional and social life, you know, there, my friend, I was 25 years old. My friends were still going out to Delaware Ave to clubs and I'm going to, you know, St. Hubert's to go recruit. And that was, that was not that it was a big challenge or it was a big deal. Like my friends were like, just come on out. And I'm like, I can't like, I, I got to go out recruiting or, Hey, we're going to go to the shore for a week in the summer. And I'm like, well, that's the live period. And I have to be at Penn state for a week because there's a big tournament up there. Um, that the, from a, an internal standpoint, trying to balance the students class schedules. Um, it's not division one where you say don't take class between three and six or 12 and three that's when we're practicing you know at division three and i'm sure a lot of division two you know we work around the students class schedules so some days you can practice at three but then some days you're practicing at seven o'clock at night because volleyball's in the gym five to seven or john barron's in the gym it seems like from one to 10, one to ten every day um and uh so those are some of the things that you had to balance that you might miss a student uh, who couldn't come to practice because she has clinical um and those are the things that we just have to we constantly monitor and and pivot with you know even to this deck
0: do you remember the first time you talked about how zone kind of threw, threw you for a loop early in your career do you remember the first time where you felt like you ran something that was really good or something you worked on came to fruition in a game and just had that feeling of, yes, that's how it's supposed to feel. That's how it's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, or just a, a game that you just had a game plan that just really worked out. Well, do you remember the the first time you, you kind of reached the top of the coaching mountain like that in a moment? No, I'm still waiting for that. Back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and I'm serious because I, I, you know, studying programs. I I remember listening to Tom Izzo from Michigan state speak one time and he always said, do not be enamored by your coaching ability based upon the talent that you have on your team. So if you have the most, the best players, you're gonna be a pretty good coach. So when I was able to, to bring in those the students early in my career, and we won a lot of games, went the NCAA tournament, it was a lot of it was because of they worked hard in the scheme, but because they were the best player. Like we had the better players on the floor. Like Gino Ariama used to say. I have Diana Tarasi and you don't, that's why I win. Um, so no, I, I think there are moments in games that you're working with your student athletes with something and you see it happen on the floor. That happens all the time. I don't think there was any aha moment. It was, it could be, you know, a play off the tap that worked. It could be, you know, out of a timeout, uh, you know, you're in zone, you come back man to man, and you um, run and jump something, and and you take the other team out of what they call the timeout for. Like those are the the little battles that you play with yourself throughout the game, as you you know you manage the game, you manage the clock, you manage the score. So I don't think there was an
0: aha moment. So we talked earlier about the AD opportunity uh, coming. You know, a few years into your your time at Quidded. Uh, was that something you embraced right away or was that something you were like, eh, let me think about it. And I don't know if I, you know, that's a lot. And did you appreciate how much it was when when it first came, you know, came in front of you?
1: Well, we had a very good president at the time, Sister Linda Bevilacqua, who I interviewed with. And and we had a, a vice president named Sister Katie McMahon, who believed in me. I I had a vision for the athletic department. Um, we added baseball, softball. We added track and field. We added men's um, lacrosse. We added, um, what am I missing here? If I said women's soccer. So I knew we had, we had an ability to grow as a university. So I embraced it right away. I mean, I, I legitimately was the athletic director first and still am today and the basketball coach second because of the responsibility of you know managing 19 sports. But getting to those 19 sports was fun, Matt. I mean, it was, you know, hiring coaches and and putting together plans to build and to recruit to the university. I felt that, you know, I embraced that from the very beginning. That's why I wanted the job, because I knew the potential that we had within our athletic department to help the university grow enrollment-wise. So, no, um, from the very beginning, there was no hesitation. I wanted the job from the very beginning. And I said, I had good mentors. I had Tom Shirley at Philly U or Thomas Jefferson now helped me out. John Zeke, who was at Cabrini at the time, helped me out tremendously. Um, Shirley Little, who was the AD at Arcadia at the time. You know, I had professional mentors that I could pick up the phone and could have a a master's level class or in my case, uh, you know, a 100 level class on how to do certain things. Tom Shirley brought me to his office and said, you know, come down. I'm going to show you what I do on on this particular subject. It was budget. And, you know, I still do my budget, how Tom taught me
0: 25 years ago. You talked about having the best, you know, when you're coaching and you've got the best kids on the floor, but I would, there's an art to coaching talent too. Like, I think there's, and I don't know if pressure is the right word, but you know, you've got kids that are better than you know, maybe eight of the nine teams in the conference. Uh, But that doesn't mean you're going to go 16 and two in the conference. Uh, Isn't there something to be said for the ability to not just bring the talent in, but utilize it to its fullest potential that you should kind of pat yourself on the back a little bit for?
1: Well, I've never in my 27 years made a jump shot or lap. It's all the players that I'm doing. it, so I give them all the credit. I, I don't know. That, that's, that's a good question. I never pat myself on the back because we just had a tough loss the other day. And the first thing I did was sit down and figure out what I did wrong and then watch film and not be really accusatory of what are doing, but just say, Hey guys, this is how we can do it differently. How do we do it better? But when you do coach talent, you really have to give them the, the, the you know, the space to fail because by giving them space to fail, it helps them become better players. I still do that today. Even, you know, if my roster top to bottom might not be as talented as some of my teams we had back in the two thousands, early two thousands, um, you still have to give them space to, to learn how to do things. And then watching film and looking at stats, you know, and then just talking through things, you know, that's how I've evolved as a coach is finding ways to motivate and to teach differently to different generation of students. What I did back in 1997, 1998 is totally different than what I did in 09 and 08, and which I do totally different in 19 and now 22, totally different. So I I think it's, it's just like evolving as an AD, you continually evolve as a coach and just find different ways to motivate your student athletes.
0: You've had a ton of success. If I counted correctly, I think it's seven conference championships, nine NCAA tournaments, you had a couple of years, I think 06, 07, where you ran the table in conference back to back years. I think the overall record was 51 and seven. What is it like to be at that level where, you know, within the context of your conference, you are UConn, you are South Carolina, you are the team that everybody, when the schedule comes out, they circle when does Gwyn and Mercy come to town? Uh, and that's a challenge in itself, getting a group of kids prepared that. You're every night you play, it is the biggest game for the other team. And that can be a grind on your team. How did you handle being at that level for that that long? And I will
1: throw in it was 0, it was oh six, oh seven, even in 08, we lost at the buzzer in the finals. We went we didn't lose a game in our conference for basically three seasons. And I don't think we lost a game under 10 points. I mean, like we won a game under 10 points. Um, So it was it was that special group of of students that came through from freshmen to seniors that um, failed as freshmen. But then sophomore, junior and senior year succeeded. I mean, Matt, honestly, it was easy because they were so talented. They were so competitive and committed to getting better. They stayed in shape. You know, they were good academically. You know, I, I really tried to get out of their way, you know, we put together game plans, but in timeouts, you know, they had the autonomy at that time to say, coach, I think we should switch to this because this is what I'm seeing out there. And I'm like, okay. And I'll tell you right now, if that probably worked, I took their suggestions nine out of 10 times, it was the right call. So I, I, as a coach, you know, yes, I get the credit for winning, but it was at that hour it was our players. They were so, as I'm sitting here in my office, there are three pictures of those teams in my office and they were just so focused and they knew how to win. And that I, we, as a coaching staff, do we help them along? Probably. But I just think it was, they were tough Philly kids that were the nucleus of that team that wind up, you know, having that success. So, you know, the Philly roots come in a little bit Philly Catholic school kids um but no I, it was the players doing that hour, really you know more than me
0: do cha- conference championships do tournament appearances do they hit different from a satisfaction standpoint depending upon the road traveled to get there and maybe how much the group improved from day 1 to day you know, 150 or whatever, is there, I mean, they're all satisfying. I don't want to, you know, you never take any for granted. But do they feel different depending upon kind of the circumstances of an individual year?
1: Yeah, because, I mean, I don't know how many coaches go into a season expecting to win a championship. Um, I think they go in with the expectation to build towards that. But, you know, not to be cliche-ish, but it's all about the journey. It's not about the end goal. And, um, you know, we did have a a team that won. I think we started the season like two and nine or or two and ten. And then we wind up going on like a 10-game winning streak, 11-game winning streak, and, you know, winning the conference championship and getting the, the, um, the automatic bid. Like that team was unique in a way where it started out so slow and then it just clicked. Whereas you know those 06, 07, 08 teams were so good that it was almost an expectation that we'd get to the championship. But as you know, anything can happen in a given day. I mean, I think I lost more championships than I've won them. Um, you know, in the conference that we're in. So <clears throat> now I, I I don't treat them any differently because they're always a surprise. Like at least in my eyes, like when you win a championship, it's so unexpected unless you're Gino. And you have all the players or you're Dawn Staley, you have all the players, and you're expected to win. I don't think that's ever the case at Division Three, because there's so many factors that go into it that you know when you do win a championship, you kind of just, you know, you're just happy at that moment in time. When I
0: look back at it, I don't feel any differently really
1: on any of the championships or NCAA tournament appearances that
0: we had. How have you <clears throat> changed since nineteen ninety-five in how you approach, either a game or a roster or X's and O's, you know, how do you feel you've, you've changed over the last 25, 26, 27 years?
1: Well, I have two children of my own and, you know, at this point, probably 15, 20 years, or probably 15 years ago, you know, you figured out different ways to motivate, you know, you watch when I grew up, who did you see all the time on the sidelines, like Bobby Knight yelling and screaming and, At some point, you have to figure out a different way to motivate. I think we motivate today. How have I developed in different ways? You know, it's a shared goal, it's shared expectations, as opposed to me, you know, imposing. Well, this is what we're going to do. You know, there's an old saying: if no one leads, your team's always going to be bad. If a coach leads, the team's going to be okay. But if the players lead. You're always going to have a good program, a good season. And I always strive for the third, having the players lead. So that's where that shared ownership of, you know, they're not, they're not sitting here writing a practice plan with me, but in meetings and in discussions with individuals and as a whole, you kind of develop a shared ownership of how your season's going to go. And I think that's how I changed more. In the beginning, it was like, this is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And now, you know, I, I, it, the athletes today are different. I see it in my own son and daughter who play high school sports that, you know, you, you can't be the Bobby Knight from 1976. You have to be the Keith Mondillo from, you know, modern day times.
0: I'm curious. Cause you got the job so young Ed Gwinnett. And I think, you know, I remember my own career steps, 23, 24, 25, you're not necessarily thinking this is where I'm going to put my flag in the ground. A lot of it's just kind of year to year, or, you know, well, I'll be here a couple of years. And then uh, do you, was it a conscious thing that I'm so happy I can have success here that this is where I want to be? Or was it kind of, you know, the AD opportunity comes and you've done that for a few years and all of a sudden you're there for 10 years and you're, you're happy, you're enjoying it. You're building a family. And it goes by like that? Or was there a moment when you said, this is where I want to be? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. I, I don't know if it was ever a conscious moment saying, um, this is where I want to be. Because I'm not content with the job as AD or coach. Because um, I always think we could, I can be better or we can get better. But at some point, I knew I wanted to be close to Philadelphia when it came to basketball. The traditions, the teams, the, the community, and how close it is whether I'm a division three women's coach or you're a division one men's coach in the city, there's always that mutual respect for each other. No one looks down at anybody. So I've been lucky enough that our leadership at Gwennett Mercy over the years has been strong um, to our current president right now. Um, Diane D'Amelio, who is, you know, has a total different vision for the university. So when she came on board four four years ago, um, it just re you know, so the values of what Gwen it's about, um, who we are, and where we're going to go. <clears throat> um, and you know, the vice presidential leadership over the years has been strong. Um, so I think all that combined with wanting to keep my family rooted at one place and liking what I do here, I never actually said this is where I'm going to be. It just so happens this is where I'm at, and it's I've had a ball. I, you know, I'm 50 years old. I turned 50 last summer. I have a lot of years left in me. And as long as the university wants me, I'll
0: be here. And you kind of went into this, my <laughs> next question, uh, with your last answer, but the Philadelphia basketball community is unique. You have dropped names throughout this. and I don't mean that in an E, but just part of the fabric of everyday life when you coach Hoops in the city. You know, how much does that – mean to you it's pretty obvious from what you've already said but i'd like you to go a little further just being part of this tapestry that is unique i think in the world that there's not another area that kind of has something like the basketball community in philadelphia
1: yeah I, like i said earlier and i don't want to name drop but i did grow uh, grow up down the street from the mars family speedy mars and he opened up a lot of doors um getting to know from my college coach, even before I I met him when I was in college, Jay Wright, when Jay Wright was an assistant coach at Drexel, the same guy you see on TV today was the same guy at Drexel 20 some years ago. And, um, but then talking to like guys like Tom Shirley, you know, who I've won more games than I've ever appeared in as a player or coach or John Zeke at, at Cabrini at the time. And then uh, like even John Barron, John Barron's one of the most successful division three coaches, you know, you know, in the last 50 years in this area, being able to, to talk to those guys and not necessarily like, I was never into rubbing elbows just because you're a division one coach. I'd rather sit down and talk with, you know, coaches at any level about what they do in their craft and that's the unique part of Philadelphia basketball. Like, you know, I'm not telling you that you don't know it, but it's, it's that camaraderie that, you know, I'll get a text after a win from a coach who I don't even think he or she followed what we were doing, you know, Hey, great win last night. Um, so yeah, that the Philly, Philly basketball is, you know, it's the biggest small city in the world. Philadelphia. Everybody knows everybody. I mean, I remember growing up playing basketball in Roxburgh, but traveling up to Northeast Philly to play at a playground somewhere or down in down in, in, in um, Port Richmond and knowing the guys from North, knowing the guys from LaSalle, from Judge, you know, Mike McLaughlin at Penn, you know, he was at Holy Family for years. Mike's and I've been friends for forever. <clears throat> um, and again, it's not about dropping names, it's about friendships. And I don't know any other profession. That's it's it's that close for that long period of time at so many levels. I mean, maybe you might know it in your industry, but I've never experienced it at all. My.
0: And my final question for you: absolute favorite part of what you do?
1: Every day's different. Um, there isn't one like I don't go to an assembly line, and I have to do A, B, and C before eleven o'clock. Every day's different, and dealing with the student athletes just not on my team, but all the other teams and seeing them develop and help them along their four years in college.
0: That's what keeps it going. Keith Mondillo, thanks so much for the time. This was great. Matt, I appreciate it. Thank you. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Winnet Mercy University Athletic Director and Head Women's Basketball Coach Keith Mondillo for being my guest of this week. If you like this show and you listen on Apple Podcasts and want to help us out, leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at one-on-one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at MattLeon1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to join us again next time when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.